Following the sermon, we will stand and sing the words of our initial response, the words of hymn 63, part of the Lord's Prayer as set to music, and we'll sing the stanzas 3, 7, and 8. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 52, we come to the end of the catechism's treatment of the Lord's Prayer, which began already back in Lord's Day 46. But even more, as you probably noticed, we also come to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism itself. Now, the end of something is always significant. When you come to the end, that last part is meant to leave an impression. It's meant to have a lasting impact. So, we've gone through the Lord's Prayer. We've gone through the Catechism. Where are we left? Well, to help guide us in our thinking it's good to connect with the end back to the beginning. Because in a sense, it's fair to say that the beginning sets a certain direction where the end brings it all together. Thus, we call to mind our confession back in Lord's Day 1, the fact that our only comfort in life and death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, both body and soul. And since the confession started us off at that point, there's a lot of ground that's been covered. The whole matter of sin and misery has been presented, how we are delivered from our sin and misery, how we are to be thankful, the pattern for thankfulness. And having gone through it all in quite some detail, we can clearly see that the whole matter of our salvation is truly incredible to think about. Because you have Jesus Christ to whom we belong. He saves us from our sins He delivers us from the power of the devil. He reconciles us to God. And we could go on talking about that for a long time. But here's the question. What's the guarantee of it all? How can you be certain of what Christ has done for you? Well, this is where Lord's Day 52 functions as the perfect conclusion, not just to the Lord's Prayer, but also the perfect conclusion for the Catechism itself. Because even though you don't find these exact words, in Lord's Day 52, there's an important confession of the church that's presented. It's that confession of the perseverance of the saints. And as we consider Lord's Day 52, what we'll see comes out clearly is the fact that the saints persevere Because the sovereign God preserves. And it's because he preserves, we may be fully assured that our comfort, which we had back in Lord's Day 1, is truly certain. And about this, I may proclaim to you the word of God this afternoon, doing so under the theme, in the end of all things, the Lord Jesus teaches us to know that our comfort is certain. Not because of our own strength, in spite of our sworn enemies, but all thanks to the sovereign God. 
Brothers and sisters, the language of the sixth petition has proven to be quite interesting over the years. We know the words well. We just read them in our confession. Lead us not into temptation. Now we have to keep in mind, prayer is speaking with God. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, what exactly are we asking? Or to put it slightly differently, what exactly are we suggesting? There's one thing that needs to be clear in our minds right from the start. It's the fact that the Lord does not tempt anyone. Because if you think about tempting, it means to entice someone to sin or wrongdoing. And that means if we were to charge God with tempting people, with tempting us, we would actually be making the claim that God is the author of sin. We know that's not the case from the Bible. James makes it clear in chapter 1, verse 13, where he writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That has to be clear in mind. Behind the sixth petition is not some subtle suggestion that God is the one tempting us to sin, because to say as much would be to lay a very heavy accusation against the Lord. So what exactly are we working with then? The explanation of the catechism puts it quite nicely. Right from the beginning, we see that the problem isn't with God at all. But the problem starts with us. In answer 127, we confess, in ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. When it comes to this whole matter of facing temptation, the catechism doesn't start us off with a confession of our strength. The first thing it presents to us is that we are incredibly weak. The truth is this, when we are faced with temptation, if we're going to try to go at it ourselves, we don't stand a chance. And that's what the sixth petition is ultimately dealing with. It's asking God not to leave us in a vulnerable position. But that part of our confession is something that we need to work out just a little bit more. Because if you think about it, to say that in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand for a moment, that's a striking statement. Ask yourself this question. By nature, how do people tend to think about themselves? By nature, people think of themselves quite highly. And that's not just true in the world. That's also true in the church. And there's no shortage of evidence for that either. Brothers and sisters, keep in mind, we are in a spiritual war. There's the great antithesis, the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that enmity which the Lord himself set in place immediately after the fall into sin. Right now, there's that enmity between the followers of Jesus Christ and between the serpent and his followers. 
But when it comes to this battle, we as soldiers have this tendency to expose ourselves to no shortage of danger. We see something on the side of the enemy. And just going by our eyes, there's something attractive about it. It seems like it's going to give us a lot of fun. Plenty of entertainment. And at that point, what happens is that our role and our responsibility as soldiers gets pushed to the side. And we try to get as close to that thing on the side of the enemy as possible. It's not just true for young people, it's true for old people as well. And if we, if we apply that thinking to ourselves, then we really start to see the truth of our confession. That in ourselves we are so weak, we cannot stand even for a moment. By ourselves, we are always drawn to that temptation. You can think about it for, like a fish. A fish, for the most part, is always attracted to a lure. And a good fisherman knows exactly which lure to put before the fish. At least a fish gets to claim ignorance. A fish can claim that it's just following its instinct. That's not the case for us. Because we know that something might be bad, and yet we still go after it. We know that something belongs on the other side, the side of the enemy, and yet we still go there. So when it comes to ourselves, Scripture and confession teach us to be very realistic. Think about what we sang in Psalm 144 before the sermon, that man is a breath or a puff of wind. Psalm 103, verses 14 through 16 for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And to be sure, these passages, they refer to the fact that man's time here on earth is very temporary. But if you dig into them, you'll see that there's a little bit more. Because if you think about a flower or the grass of the field, it's all beautiful to observe. But for all its beauty, that flower or that grass is incredibly helpless. Give that grass or that flower some extra heat or some wind, it's gone. It's never remembered. And in that way, it's a reflection of what man has become with the fall into sin. When you go back to the beginning, God created man as the very crown of creation. Man was created to reflect God, to be holy, to be righteous, to have dominion over this world as God would do so. And yet with sin, man is no longer able to carry out that task. Instead, rather than giving off this reflection of God... We only have a picture of limitation, weakness, helplessness. And there's a lot of other passages in Scripture that say the same thing. You find these concepts also worked out in Psalm 90. In that psalm, you have the eternal God 
compared with temporary man. And again, man is compared to the grass there in the morning. In the evening, it withers and fades. But why is that the case? Why does man wither? Why does man fade? Moses makes it very clear in that psalm. It's because of sin. Man is brought to an end by God's anger, he states. There's more passages that could be looked at, but the point should be clear. There is no reason for people to think highly of themselves in any way. We are in a spiritual war being waged continually. And yes, it is by God's grace to us in Jesus Christ that we have been made soldiers in this ongoing struggle. But through it all, we're not good soldiers. In fact, we're useless soldiers. Because in this battle, we face temptation time and again. Daily, there's this lure before us the seeming attraction of sin set right in our sights. And then let's think about it for ourselves. How often do you not fall into it? How often do you not just give in? How often as a soldier are you able to stand firm? The word of God makes things clear for us. The confession brings it together very powerfully. In ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Or to go back to the beginning, Lord's Day 1. To live with the comfort of belonging to Christ, what's the first thing we need to know? How great our sins and misery are. At the beginning of the catechism, And at the end of the catechism, we're left in the same position. Namely, that of ourselves, we are weak and we are helpless. One of our other confessions also deals with the perseverance of the saints. You find it addressed in the Canons of Dort, chapter 5. And in this chapter, article 1 is titled the regenerate not free from indwelling sin. And there it states that those belonging to Christ are certainly set free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. So even in that chapter of the Canons of Dort, dealing with our perseverance, the fact that things are going to work out well in the end, also that chapter begins with the confession of our weakness. And it goes on to talk about our daily sins of weakness. It goes on to talk about that even saints fall into serious sins. So where does that leave us? Well, at the very least, it ought to leave us incredibly humbled. Because if we would be left to ourselves in this spiritual war... There's no hope of victory. There's only the certainty of defeat. And for a defeated soldier in this war, there's only mortal danger 
namely eternal death. But not only should we be humbled, it also should make us incredibly realistic because we are forced to confess that yes, I do fall into temptation. Sin is still very much a part of my life. But the truth is we actually like to think as though we can stand on our own even a little bit. Because when people fall into sin, then they get caught. What you'll often hear from them is that they had a moment of weakness. And that language implies that this moment is the exception. That normally they're in a position of strength. In light of everything we've considered so far, one thing should be clear. Our only moment of ourselves is weakness. And that is why it is so important that our Savior teaches us to pray this petition. You see, Jesus Christ, knowing us for who we are, doesn't say, okay, I've made you a soldier in this spiritual war. Now you go fight harder. You go try harder. You need to put in more effort. That's not what he says to us. He says, yes, you're in this spiritual war, but you need to get down on your knees. You need to pray. You need to be realistic about yourself that you can do nothing. And he makes that clear. John 15, verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say you can do a little bit and I'll help you the rest of the way. He makes it clear we rely on him entirely. But then there's more. Because with the sixth petition, it's not only lead us into temptation, there's also the phrase, and deliver us from the evil one. And with that, our Savior directs us to consider our sworn enemies. We come to our second point. It's important to notice the order in which the catechism presents things. Because when we hear about enemies, we might like to think, well, okay, there's our first problem. But that's not the order of our confession. In the catechism, we and our weakness are the first problem. The sworn enemies come second. And they only complicate the matter a little bit more. And while that is the proper order... It's not the case that we can think lightly about these enemies either. The confession uses the language that they are our sworn enemies. They are completely devoted to one thing, and that is our downfall and destruction. And this is a mission that they take incredibly seriously because they do not cease to attack us. For these sworn enemies... They don't have the odd moment of pity for us. They don't have a time where they feel sorry for us and give us a bit of a relief. They keep pressing their attack. And thus the catechism presents us with them. Not so that we can shift the blame, but so that we can know what we're up against and so that we're driven to Christ even more. 
And the first of these sworn enemies, he's the arch enemy, the ancient foe, the murderer and liar from the beginning, as we heard this morning. He's the prince of darkness. He stands opposed to everything that is good. And there's many ways that scripture speaks about him, all of which are negative. And so it's not a surprise that he is included among our sworn enemies. Because throughout the scriptures, what you read is Satan's ongoing hostility against God. We don't read about his initial rebellion against the Lord, but we do know that it happened. We also read that he did tempt our first parents to sin back in paradise. We read how God declared war against him and his seed, Genesis 3. And all of this comes together quite nicely in Revelation 12. Because there you have Satan's attempts to destroy the child born who would crush his head. And right from the beginning of this chapter, he's presented as a very dangerous foe. In verse 3, he's described as a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. The next verse, verse 4, his tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. So clearly, he's got power. But then this passage also makes clear that he's unsuccessful. He couldn't destroy the child, no matter what attempt he made. But that didn't stop him. He continued his assault. Verses 7 and 8, he fought with his angels against Michael and his angels. He lost that battle. He lost his place in heaven. was sent down to earth. Still doesn't quit, though. Verse 13, he pursued the woman who had given birth. Again, unsuccessful. Yet he still doesn't stop. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so what Revelation 12 makes clear is that our first sworn enemy, he is incredibly persistent. He doesn't quit no matter how often he fails. And he's not exactly in the best of moods either. Verse 12, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Verse 17, he became furious with the woman. And right there we need to stop and think. Remember what we said in our first point. We're weak. And ourselves we're certain to fall. And now you have the arch enemy of God. The ancient foe filled with fury and wrath against us. That can be incredibly unsettling, to say the least. We can be thankful to God that Satan is still kept on a leash, that Satan is still under God's sovereign control, also that Satan can only be in one place at one time. But then the problem gets a little worse, because he has allies. In the first place, there's the world. The Lord Jesus teaches his disciples something about the world while in the upper room before he would go to the cross. And he says about the world in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me 
before it hated you. It's not a matter of maybe the world will hate the people of God. It's a guarantee. Scripture states very clearly that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's not hard to see the truth of our Lord's words either. There's active persecution in so many different countries around the world. We have brothers and sisters whose lives are at stake because they hold to the truth of Jesus Christ. There's subtle persecution that takes place in the Western world. There's the pressure of compromise, the temptation of simply being complacent, not realizing the treasures that we have been blessed with. Now, here's the thing. We could go on for a long time talking about our, those first two sworn enemies, the devil and the world. But there's also that third enemy, our own flesh. And in many ways, brothers and sisters, that third enemy is the most dangerous of the enemies. Maybe that's surprising to hear. We've talked about the devil, his fury, his rage against God, his threats against the church. We talked about the world and their hatred. So how is it that the flesh is the more dangerous of those enemies? Well, it's because with the flesh... We have the traitor within. The traitor that's seeking our very downfall. And with the flesh, we have an enemy that is present within us at all times. Perhaps it's fair to say that we pay more attention to the first two than the last. We know of the devil. We know he's prowling around this world like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. We know of the world and its hostility, making things incredibly challenging for the church. And it's really convenient to be able to point a finger at those two directions. But we are our own worst enemy. We're the biggest problem. The fact that by nature, we are inclined to all evil. And so in that sense, we can say this, the antithesis or that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is a battle that is raging in each one of us. We ourselves are a battleground. Now here's a question. How often do you think about yourself in that way? We put everything together so far. We are weak, certain to go down to defeat. We have three sworn enemies that do not cease to attack us, seeking our eternal destruction. And if we were just to stop there and leave it at that, our situation would truly be hopeless. And yet nothing could be more wrong. Because the certainty of our comfort, the certainty of our victory, does not rest on us. It's not about how good or how bad of a soldier we are, but by teaching us to close our prayers in this way with the sixth petition, and then also the doxology and that closing word, the Lord Jesus gives us assurance that our comfort is indeed certain. Because the people of God persevere, 
for it's the sovereign God who preserves them and who deserves all thanks and praise. We come to our third point. When you look at Lord's Day 52, what you see is that everything does indeed center on God. We are weak. The enemies are strong. But it's God who has the solution to everything. You see, over the course of life, we are confronted with temptations ongoing. Something that never seems to end. But in spite of our weakness... We have the sovereign God to whom we can turn at all times. As mentioned earlier, the Lord Jesus teaches us to get on our knees and to pray, not to fight in our own strength. And this comes out at the end of answer 127. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Notice how the confession talks about both upholding and strengthening. To uphold. That's enabling us to continue standing, to be engaged in this spiritual battle. To strengthen, that is to equip us for going forward, to be constantly energizing us in this war. And all of that comes only as a result of the Spirit's work for us. He is the solution to the fact that we are weak and that we are surrounded by all these temptations. This comes out in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, what's the way of escape? To pray. To pray that the Spirit would uphold and strengthen you. Because brothers and sisters, understand this well. There is not a single temptation that we face in which the Spirit cannot help us. He is Almighty God. There's nothing beyond His power. And what is the task of the Spirit? Let's go back to the beginning. Lord's Day 1. He heartily assures us of eternal life. He gives us strength and ability to battle against sin and temptation. He transforms us into those who are heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Christ. It's in our blessed Savior that everything comes together perfectly. Because it's our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, who has overcome each one of our sworn enemies He's conquered the devil. We read about that in Revelation 12, how Satan could not even touch him. And by the cross, our Savior defeated that arch enemy. By his blood, he obtained the forgiveness of our sins. And he won the battle so that Satan no longer has any claim over us, nor does Satan have any access to heaven, and so he cannot accuse us. Through Christ, the head of the serpent has been crushed, and therefore his time is short. And it's the Lord Jesus who's also overcome the world. We read that very statement in John 16, verse 33. Yes, the enmity of the world is increasing, but the world is already a defeated enemy. 
And Christ has won the victory over our sinful nature. For by his spirit, we are being recreated into the image of our Savior. We're being restored back into what we were supposed to be before the fall. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But it doesn't always seem like things are going that well, does it? Because you have the ancient foe. And he's still making loud boasts. Think about how scripture talks of him. The prince of this world. The king of darkness. He still hasn't quit. Think about the world. Plots and conspiracies against the church seem to continue. And they even seem to be advancing unchecked. Think about yourself. We still have that ongoing struggle against sin. There's things in our life that it doesn't seem like we can ever overcome. But how does Christ teach us to close our prayer? He doesn't leave us with uncertainty, but with confidence. And if you break down that word confidence, then you see that at its root is the word fides. Faith. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Christ has won the victory. It is something that cannot change. The kingdom of God has triumphed and it will be all in all. Thus the power belongs to God. The glory belongs to God. It is what he is worthy of now. It is what he will receive perfectly in eternity. And as we've mentioned before, this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is dealt with in chapter 5 of the Canons of Dort. And in the closing article there, we find some very interesting words. If you have a book of praise, I invite you to turn to page 585. Page 585, we're going to read article 15 in the Canons. And this article is titled, This Doctrine is Hated by Satan, but Loved by the Church. This doctrine of the perseverance of true believers and saints, and of their assurance of it, God has most abundantly revealed in his word for the glory of his name, and for the consolation of the godly, and he impresses it on the hearts of believers. It is something which the flesh does not understand. Satan hates, the world ridicules, the ignorant and the hypocrites abuse, and the heretics attack. The bride of Christ, on the other hand, has always loved this doctrine most tenderly and defended it steadfastly as a treasure of inestimable value. And God, against whom no counsel can avail and no strength can prevail, shall see to it that she will continue to do so. To this God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. So far, note some particular reactions there. This doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is hated by Satan. And that's not a wonder, because it means his defeat is sure. It means this doctrine is one that the world ridicules, but in the end, all their laughing will come to nothing. 
and it will change to crying out in terror. But this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is treasured by the bride of Jesus Christ because what it means is that our salvation and our comfort are sure. In life and death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has freed us from all our sins. He has set us free from all the power of the devil. Not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our Father. We are eternally safe and secure. And so we may sing that in him alone we trust. We will never be confounded. It is true. It is certain. Amen.